We are in the book of Ephesians chapter 4, and if you remember, we've turned a hinge, we've turned a corner here. The first three verses, or the first three chapters are dealing with the idea of doctrine. And in dealing with doctrine, it's all things that we need to know before we can grow. It is only by knowing that you can grow. You cannot grow if you don't know. And if you try to go and you don't know, you will go in the wrong direction. I got rhymes all day. But let me sum it up for you. I I really tried to think of a way to craft this in a way where maybe we could grasp it. By constantly beholding our position in Christ. Now that's that's, that's what it is. It's a position that we've been put in by no effort of our own. It is a gift of grace. And it's all bought for us by the blood of Christ. So he dies for us and puts us in this spotless and holy and blameless position before the Father where the Father only sees us through his Son and that is irrevocable. It can never be taken away because we did nothing to secure it. So if we will simply behold our position in Christ, that's chapters 1, 2, and 3, that will give way to that reality becoming part of our practice. How I live life will now be a result of this new way of thinking and what Jesus has done. The sad thing is, is that what Jesus has done is always the reality. So anytime that I operate in a way that is not in conformity with what he has done, I'm a hypocrite. Period. I don't know a better word to put on it. I may be religious. I may be keeping a really awesome scorecard of how Christian I am. But none of that matters before the Lord because anything that I would aspire to be in Christ has already been secured for me. Let's be honest. Sometimes buying bottled water is weird. Yes? Why is buying bottled water weird? Because you have tap water. And we already pay for the tap water to come to our home. Why am I buying the bottled water? And somebody goes, have you tasted the tap water lately? So I get it. I get it. I do. But if we just back up off the specifics and take a general illustration, we oftentimes try to buy what we already have. And that's how it goes in Christ. All things are yours. Every spiritual blessing is yours. You lack nothing. Now, I'm sure somebody came through the door this morning feeling inadequate. It just happens. It's the way that life likes to tear us down. It's the way that our flesh tries to desire things that we really don't need. It's the way that Satan likes to grate on us, especially as we're coming here to worship. You don't want to go to worship? Come on. There's going to be other people that are better than you there. Don't listen to that nonsense. We're not in competition with one another. We're unified together. And so if I have my mind wrapped around my position and it begins to take root in my heart, I all of a sudden find that my practice just happens based on what Jesus has done. And that's why we turn this corner in chapter 4, verse 1. So notice what it says here. Let's read up just these six verses. Therefore, I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy, balancing out the scales, remember that's what that means, of the calling with which you have been called. And then he strikes at the attitude with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And then he moves into this. There is one body and one spirit, just as also you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. So here's the question. Why should we be diligent to preserve the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. Isn't that what verse 3 says? 
That's the call. Walk worthy. Here's the right attitude and make sure that it's coded in love. And then seek to maintain the unity that you already have in Christ. Here's the reason why is because to not do so would be to stand in hypocrisy to seven indispensable and unchangeable realities that we have. Now, because I don't have my clicker, I'm all messed up this morning. I'll go ahead and tell you. I'm completely off my game. But I take comfort in the fact that, number one, the Packers have already played. Number two, we didn't have Sunday school. And so I don't care what time it is. We're going to be here a while. Okay? Let's back up to this real quick. Being diligent. Let's, let's just grab this real quick. I know we saw this last week. Grab this with me, please. Make every effort. If any conflict, situation, problem, even if it's just like harmless and needs an answer in the church or your involvement in the church, whatever we do, does not matter what it is, should be seeking to make every effort towards the unity that we already share in the body. In other words, we already are one in Christ. So now everything that we seek to practice ought to move towards oneness. God is not a fan of division. Division is not His way. God is all about solidarity. A common cause and everybody unified together pressing towards the same goal. Satan is a divider. Satan's greatest desire is to rip the church into shreds. Now, while we were in Indiana uh, this past week, I had some errands to run. And I went down to the building where my previous church was. It's no longer there anymore. The church folded and all this stuff. It's been sold. And, but when I drove from there to the house where we used to live, because I wanted to show the boys... One boy was like, hey, I used to live there. And the other one's like, I used to live there. And I was like, no, you were born in Wisconsin. No, I'm not. I used to live there. (laughs) Think what you want, man. You're three. Okay. From there back, I counted 14 churches. Why in the world do we have so many churches? Why can't we just get along? So you had that chili cook-off and you didn't win. That doesn't mean go start your own denomination. Good grief. But that's where we've gotten. People have become so sensitive to tertiary issues to where I'm going to rip the body of Christ apart and I'm going to go in another direction and I'm going to establish this pet doctrine and denominationalism has become the creedal subscription of Christianity. And that is from Satan. Understand this. Are you saying that the creeds are wrong? I'm saying that the creeds aren't Scripture. I remember one time I had a disagreement with somebody on the assurance of a believer. Could a believer really be sure that they had salvation? My whole argument was, yes, John 3.16 is pretty clear. If they believe, they have eternal life. How long is eternal life? I think that guy's a PhD now. You guys are smarter than he was on this thing. The things that he brought to the battle that a believer could never have Assurance of salvation was his Greek New Testament and a copy of the Westminster Confession. I was like, dude, you can't even read that New Testament. Stop it. But this is what we battle with. Our creeds, what we subscribe to. Our favorite preachers. Our favorite worship songs. Our favorite worship people. Our favorite personalities. Stop it. All of these are an aversion to Jesus. All of these are a roadblock to Jesus. They're what we think to be helpful blindfolds that keep us from really beholding Christ and being changed by Him. So let's recognize their place at the bottom and look up for a change and really take a look at the Savior. Division is not from the Lord. It's just not. So we are to be diligent in this situation to preserve. Why? Because it's already there. The unity of the Spirit. Now, here's the interesting thing. Is the Holy Spirit indwelling? Yes. Is the Holy Spirit divided? No. So why are we? If all believers in Christ have the same Holy Spirit, why in the world are we so divided on these things? Scripturally, it makes no sense, and scripturally, no one has any clout 
to make that argument because the Bible points in an upward direction of unity in Christ. Now notice this, in the bond of peace. Now, we all wear belts for different reasons. Number one, we wear belts because they look good. Number one, we wear belts to keep our pants up, okay? But the thing is, is that when you buckle that thing secure, it's to hold. Regardless of what your reason or function to do it, it holds. And that's the idea here, is that the fact that the Spirit has desired to buckle the body of Christ together in a state of peace. Why? Remember this. Peace is not a feeling. Peace is first and foremost a person. And peace is Jesus Christ. He is our peace. Romans 5.1, Jesus Christ is our peace. So anytime that we are looking to Christ and He becomes a central focus of what we're going for, peace happens. Why? Well, it's not that you need to create peace, try to do peace, create an agenda for peace, bring up a curriculum of peace. It's not that. You just need to focus on Jesus Christ and peace happens. Why? Because He is peace. So if I keep the main thing the main thing, everything else I'm worried about fills in. It's not a problem. Everybody with me? Okay. All right. Just make sure. Now, we can move forward. Here we go. Back to my question. Why should we be diligent to preserve the unity of peace? The reason is because we don't. We're hypocrites from everything that Jesus has done. Now watch this. Number one, notice that it says that there is one body. By the way, there's seven of these. We're only going to get through five of them today. Okay? Because we need to unpack them and take a look at them. Unity makes sense because of these seven things. The number one thing is the body. There are not many bodies in Christ. Does Christ have many bodies? No, he doesn't. He has one body. There's no other assembly of the believers than this. Let me give you some instances. Now, real quick, important thing to remember, sermon, pause, hear, note to think about what we're doing. When we read through Ephesians and we get in 4, 5, and 6, and we like that because we're like, yeah, this is what I should be doing. This is how I should be working. This is how I should be talking. This is how I should be acting. We love all that stuff, but if you separate it from 1 through 3, you're going to do it in the flesh and you're going to do it wrong, Okay. So my goal is to show you the concepts of which he is explaining here and how they tie into what he's already said in chapters 1, 2, and 3. In other words, let's refer these things back to the position that we have in Christ so that we make sure that our practice is a result of what we know, not that we're out here practicing trying to do good for the sake of the Lord, but we're actually operating in ignorance. We don't want to do that, okay? So the fact is, number one, there's one body. Doesn't matter where they meet, what their building is called, any of that stuff. If they are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, that he died for their sins and rose from the grave, and that you are saved by faith and faith alone, they are your brother and sister in Christ. Now let me say this, just so that we are clear on this. I know some people don't like when I say this, but really think about the integrity of the gospel. Okay? If they are someone who believes in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, but believes that you are saved by faith plus whatever else you want to fill in the blank, whether before you believe or after you believe. Well, you need to clean up your act in order for Jesus to save you. That's not the gospel. How about the idea of, well, now that you're saved, you should be cleaning up your act. That's not the gospel. Because you didn't clean up your act after you got saved, I'm going to conclude that you're not really saved. Everybody's in different places. I think one thing that could happen is if the church, and I'm not talking about our church in particular, but yes, our church should be included in this, would step forward and disciple more fervently and prayerfully with the Word of God, we would find that our results would be a lot more quality rather than quantity. That's what Jesus desires is quality disciples. How does that happen? The Word of God being the raw material fed into the fire of the Holy Spirit, which creates a bonfire for everybody to see. That's what needs to be going down on every level in the church. But the church has a responsibility to be ministering to these nursery-laden kids that just came into Christ. You don't look at babies and be like, get your act together, stop slobbering on yourself. You, know, you might at 2 a.m., I get that, okay? Been there, done that, that's okay. But the idea is with newborns in Christ, you don't do that. You don't do that. You draw them close, you coddle them, you love them, and you feed them well so that they will grow. And you teach them well so that they will grow. We could stand to do a lot more of that so that there's not so much splintering and splitting within the body. There's only one assembly. Now, think about what we've seen previously with this. And if you're taking notes, you can just jot these references down in the side because they will be in previous booklets that you've had. 
But notice what it says here in Ephesians 1, verses 22 and 23, how he finishes out that chapter. He put all things in subjection under his feet. He is the Father. His feet is Jesus. His feet, and gave him, Jesus, as head over all things to the church, which is his what? His body. There's only one body, yes? Only one body, and it's Christ's body. Notice that the body is the fullness of Him who fills all in all. We are the fullness of Christ because we are His body. And we are here now to fill out all things in His name. The responsibility has been given to us until Christ raptures us. How about this next one here? This is from chapter 2, verses 14, and we're going to get into 16 as well. For He Himself is our what? Peace who made both groups into one. What are the groups? Jew, Gentile. We spent a lot of time on that, recognizing what he's doing. It's not that Gentiles become the new Israel. Get rid of that heretical theology. That's not what it is. He broke down the barrier of the dividing wall. Anybody remember what that is? It's the law. By abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances. Why? So that in himself, in Christ, in himself, he might take the two, Jew and Gentile, into, here's what we're called, one new man. Notice it doesn't say one new man's, or one new men's, or men, or however else we pronounce it in Kentucky grammar. He doesn't bring up multiplicities. It's the idea of one. Doesn't matter where you came from, doesn't matter where you are. If you've come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, you are part of this one new man. All the other ways that you would classify yourself and diversify yourself don't matter because we're all one in Christ. All that stuff falls to the wayside. It's no longer your identity. And because there's one new man, whatever hostility and infighting, beating our heads against the wall that we would have had with people like that, guess what? It's all laid down. It's all destroyed. Christ is victorious over all of it. And notice that it establishes peace. Why? Because he is our peace. Notice that he might reconcile. I love this word. I I love this word. I love it. Why? What does reconcile mean? Talk to me. What does reconcile mean? It's drawing back together. Jay did this. Exactly. If you are wearing a jacket right now, you could easily put the bottom of that clip in that zipper and reconcile both sides of the division of your jacket. Now that sounds silly, but let's be honest. They're separated for a reason, right? It's because I'm hot. It's okay. Not a bad thing. But if you want to bring them back together, imagine that that's what Jesus did in the cross of Christ. This side is Jew, this side is Gentile. Now they're all one. And it's done. And especially if you got one of those cool ones with the Velcro flap that goes over, just seal that thing right on up because Jesus did. That's what he did. So notice he reconciled them both in one body to God. Everybody see the two God part. No, real quick, I'm getting like Blue's brother excited about this, okay? Here's a reason why. If he reconciled them both in his body, he didn't do it just like, yay, and let us go. He did it for a reason. He did it to pull us together to God. Everybody think about this. We are the result of of what Christ has done on the cross, bringing us into a situation where it's almost like we're a thank you offering to the Father for this happening. Now we're going to see this in a minute. Aren't we God's inheritance? Yeah, we saw that from from Ephesians 1, 17 and 18. He's waiting to get a hold of us when it's all over and done with. He can't wait to be with us forever. Well, guess what? Guess how we got in that position to be God's inheritance? Christ made it so. He brought us all together, and He brought us together in one body to God. Here you go, Father. In fact, it says after the millennial reign of Christ, when He's done ruling, He will actually turn around and take that kingdom, and He will offer it back to His Father. All the other dispensations didn't steward it so well. Guess what? You get the King of Kings on the throne, He's going to steward that thing great. And when He's done with it, here you go. What a great present. 
There's just a lot of gift giving. Man, Christmas spirit, all that. I love it. Now, how did he do this? How do you reconcile it? It was reconciled through the cross. By it having put to death the enmity. So whatever struggle there would have been, if there's any sort of, let's go ahead and hit the nail on the head, anti-Semitism going on, guess what? Jesus nailed it to the cross to get it done with. Why? Because anti-Semitism is evil. In fact, I don't know anywhere in the scripture that we're ever commissioned to hate anyone. Hate has caused a lot more division than it has bringing together. You might want to think about where that comes from. How about this one in chapter 3, verse 6? The Gentiles, those who were formerly far off, are fellow heirs, sharing in, fellow members of the, right? Because there's only one body, and fellow partakers of the promises in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Only one body. And so for us not to strive to keep the unity of the Spirit going on here, what He's already maintained, is the idea of taking the body of Christ and just splitting it up and casting it out. That's not just heretical, that's blasphemous. The body of Christ is not divided. How about this? Also, it's one Spirit. Everybody see in verse 4 how it's there is one body and one spirit. For some reason, they grouped those together. Paul decided under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, group those together. And then he's got a little bit more. He's going to bring up the third one here, the hope that we're called him. But he puts those two together. Look back at verse three real quick. Being diligent to preserve the unity of the, what? The spirit in the bond of peace. Who unifies us? Does he? We're unified, we're unified in Christ but the one who unifies us is the Spirit. 100% God. The Holy Spirit is not the red-headed stepchild of the Trinity. Let's understand this, okay? Let's make sure we understand this. The Holy Spirit is here just with the Son and the Father. Same level. Sometimes we run into this thinking where we've diminished Him and diminished His work, and we miss out on a lot of things because we stop being discerning of the Holy Spirit. We get more concerned with rule-keeping than we do of trying to be intuitive about what the Spirit might do. Supernatural stuff. Don't be scared of it. It's just the Bible. Okay? It's just what God wants to do. If the Spirit dwells in us, praise the Lord. Third of the Trinity dwells in you and me. Praise God for that. That God saw fit to do that. Now watch this. The unity of Spirit in the bond of peace. So there's one body and there's one Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the one who unifies us. Now, again, what do the previous chapters of Ephesians have to say about this? You probably remember this because it's a big deal about eternal security. In Him, that's Christ, you also, after listening to the message of truth, which means that you had to hear it, okay? You had to come in contact with the gospel in some way. The gospel of your salvation, having also believed, notice that's the condition and the only condition that's put there, you were sealed in Him with, who brought you into this? The Holy Spirit of promise who is given as a pledge. That is not the United States of America. Okay, That is the idea of a down payment that's put forward because there's more. The pledge of our what? Inheritance with a view to the redemption, and that is future, the future redemption, of God's own possession. See how much God loves you? To the praise of His glory. The Holy Spirit is a down payment put in the bank account, of which there will be more to come. When He draws us unto Himself, we will be His inheritance at that moment, brought into it, and guess what? There's going to be nothing but worship because that happens. That's the whole idea. The Holy Spirit is the one who does it. There's only one Spirit. For through Him, that's Jesus, this is from Ephesians 2, through Him, we both, Jew and Gentile, have our access in what? Notice that. One Spirit to the Father. Does everybody realize that the Trinity just showed up in this one verse? Through Christ, in one Spirit, we have this access now through the Father. It's the Spirit that unifies us together. Notice in verse 22 of this, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God, which is the idea of the Holy of Holies, You'd see the type of it in the Old Testament where the Jews would worship the Lord, the Spirit of the Lord would be. 
But notice that this is in the Spirit. We're being built together as the body of Christ into a structure of which the Spirit of God dwells richly. It's where God wants to be in us. Now, an important thing to point out, might seem like a, well, yeah, moment, but just go with me on this. Notice that the indwelling Holy Spirit is not the Holy Spirit's. It's one Spirit. It's not that Gene has the Holy Spirit, but I got Holy Spirit 1A, and then Brenda's got Holy Spirit 2.0. Okay? That's not how this runs. This means one and the same Spirit is indwelling every believer in Jesus. Now pause for a second because the implications of this are huge. That means that if we have a situation where we need to be discerning, we go to the Word of God for guidance, we submit ourselves in prayer to the Lord, we are not going to come to different conclusions because we all have the same Holy Spirit. It's not going to happen. If we do, it's because flesh has come in somewhere with someone. Recognize this. Because God is not playing about the unity of the body. And He has given us the Word to guide us. Okay, so those are the white lines. Yeah, yellow lines in the middle. Drive along in your lane. Cool, we got the guidance there. But as far as how we move forward, the motor that runs the whole thing is the indwelling Spirit. We have the guidance, we have the motor that runs us forward, and if we have a car crash, it's because somebody decided to drive in the flesh. Otherwise, every car should be lined up beside one another and moving in the same direction towards the same goal. Why? Because the Spirit is unified and in Him is no contradiction whatsoever. And if we are truly seeking to be selfless and humble and get out of God's way and let God do it, we will all come to the same conclusion. Now, I know that sounds fantastical. And it probably sounds fantastical, and I don't even know if that's a word, for one reason. It's because we haven't seen it. Yeah, this is God's strategy in our lives. <laughs> anyway, moving on. The reason is, is because a lot of times we have not seen this displayed in our churches. We always know of some story that happened in some place where the fabric of that body was just ripped right down the middle. People walked away hurt. People walked away beaten down. People walked away abused. People walked away oppressed. People walked away with tarnished reputations. And guess what? None of it had to happen. Not one bit of it had to happen. But as soon as somebody got their flesh all up in the middle of it and essentially said, very pharisaically, I don't care what the Spirit says. I'm going to do what I want. You got a problem. You got a problem. And that is a point of repentance right there. So notice, this means that there's one and the same Spirit indwelling all of us. The Holy Spirit is God. Let's not forget that. He is not divided. Him indwelling multiple believers is a mark of His omnipresence. Omni, all, or every. Presence, here. He is always present. He is everywhere present at all times. So the idea that He would not need to divide Himself like some Harry Potter horcrux or something like that in order to go into all these believers. You younger kids get that. You older people think I'm not saved now. That's okay, don't worry about it. But dividing it up in all of us, you get a little bit of the Spirit, you get a little bit of the Spirit. No, we have fully the Spirit of God dwelling in us. He desires to mold us, make us, fuel us, fire us, and change us. Okay? We all have that. And the way that He can do that is it's a mark of His omnipresence. He can be in every one of us at once, and it's not a contradiction. And it's not hard for Him. He's God. He can do it. That is a hallmark. That is a non-moral attribute that He has. Of his person. So recognize this. If anything, if you don't get anything else out of this, recognize what the re- what, what's the reason why we should ste- seek to strive to be unified as the body of Christ? For no other reason that God is unified in you and desires to unify you with other believers by his spirit. His spirit is not divided. We should not be divided. Very important. Number three, notice it says after that, just as you also were called in one hope. Everybody see it? In one hope, that's number three, of your calling. Everybody go back to verse one. Therefore, I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the what? The calling with which you have been. Same idea. Paul is not, just a couple of verses later, getting out of context with them. What is the calling? 
What is our call as believers? To be saved. No. Nope. Nope. That's part of it. What does Ephesians say? One spirit? No. These are all great answers. They're just wrong. What did you say, Connie? Nope. What is the hope? Huh? Okay, everybody stop. Here it is. Remember this. This is a reason why we've gone, this is a reason why we've gone over this over and over and over. This is the prayer. This is Paul's first prayer in Ephesians at the end of chapter 1. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, he's praying for believers, the Father of glory may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation. How? In the knowledge of him. So it's a supernaturally driven, better understanding. And if I recall correctly, it's epignosis there for knowledge. So it's the idea of a firsthand, experiential, familiar well understood, I know this because I've actually put my hands on it kind of thing. The Spirit has to do this. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the key word. There's only one hope. No! There, there's <laughs> Adam, what'd you do? It's this woman you gave to me, Lord. What have you done? It's a serpent. There is not a period there. That the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that, here's the reason, you will know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. The hope is his calling, right? Walk worthy of the call with which you have been called. Back to verse 4, notice what it says here. Just as also you were called in one hope of your calling. What is that one hope? That we would begin to grasp the reality of the fact that we are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. It's the idea of just riches and glory poured into us, poured into us because we are what God gets. We are His inheritance. And notice, there's only one hope. What is the one hope? The time when we're gathered to Him as His inheritance and He brings us unto Himself. That's the hope. Now don't get me wrong. Because people would look at this and they say, well, the hope is the gospel. The gospel's how you get there. That's how you get in this position. But if we want to be consistent with the book... What does it tell us the hope of his calling is? It tells us it's the idea that he wants us to begin to grasp mentally what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. Do you know the depths and the beauty and the wealth that God is getting out of us? And I know because spiritually sometimes I feel like just turning out my pockets and getting on my knees. I get it. Like I'm so unworthy of this. That's why it's grace. We will never be deserving of this situation. Isn't it interesting that God's not worried about making us feel awkward? You know, we kind of do that. I don't deserve to be here, Lord. I'm sure that God's going to be like, I know. You know, He knows. He gets it. But He also gets excited about putting you where you shouldn't be. And He can do it because His Son did everything that the Father asked of Him. And so he puts, this is what we're talking about. The position of unconditional acceptance before the Lord. You don't ever have to work to be accepted. You are accepted. You don't ever have to earn his favor. You have his favor. Well, I guess God's going to be really mad at me because I bought that lottery ticket. No, it wasn't the best use of your money. And if you scratch off a lot of money, he expects you to give to the building program, period. That's just the way it goes. You know, I think about it. But God doesn't hate you and he's not mad at you. And he's not against you. He is for you. How could God be for you? Doesn't he know what kind of person I am? Yes, and you are his inheritance. And it's rich and it's glorious. But I had nothing to do with that. You're right. You did everything to go against what God wanted for you. 
Thank God that his son got involved to flip all this over and make it not make sense. And the reason why it doesn't make sense is because it's grace. And grace doesn't make sense to our world. Our world is a merit-based performance system. Grace doesn't make sense. But I know this, let's be honest. There's something deep within our being that is so welcoming of grace even though we're undeserving of grace. There's a relief that comes over us and pours off and says, thank you, Father. I know I'm a schmuck. You know, I get it. Thank you for not casting me aside. Thank you for promises like you'll never leave me and forsake me. That sounds so cliche when we say that now. Good grief, they're beautiful promises. God, I don't know what to do right now. Well, guess what? I didn't leave you or forsake you this whole thing. Think about that. I can't wait for you to be mine forever and ever in eternity. That's what it goes for. Now, here's another interesting one. One Lord. The fourth one is there's only one Lord. And it's Jesus. The word Lord is brought up 23 times in the book of Ephesians. Every time. Sorry, I'm getting ahead of myself. There. The word Lord is brought up 23 times in Ephesians. Every occurrence refers uh, to Jesus with eight of them naming him specifically. But if you go through the entire book and read it, and you look at every context, it's all pointing to the centrality of who Jesus is. This is the pinnacle of the chiasm that makes Ephesians 4, 4 through 6. Now, what in the world is a chiasm? Let me help you here. And I know this is super nerdy. If you want, you can sleep for like the next five minutes. It's okay. As a literary device, so this is a literary device that they would use under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in order to write out both Old and New Testament scripts, okay? And it, once, you, once you learn how to identify them, they're actually a lot, of, a lot of fun to find in Scripture. And when you find them, you really get behind the crux of what the author wanted to drive home, okay? It's a literary device, it's a chiasm, maybe a small unit as a few as three lines, or it may encompass a complete literary work such as the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament. They actually serve as a chiasm. Though one key trait of chiasm is the repetition of material in reverse order. So it will go in a certain degree and then it'll come there and then it will kind of reverse out like that in how they list it. Its arrangement of material does more than that. Its structure serves to point the reader or the ancient listener to its central section as the significant element. The other parallel pairs of units contribute to the message. But the central unit or units serve as its teaching point. In other words, let me break it down for you this way. Paul so wrote under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit this section because he said, if we want to drive home why we should strive for unity in anything, this is a good reason, and this is a good reason, and this is a good reason. But let's be honest, the real best reason, not that all the rest of them are not good reasons, but the real significant power punch reason is this reason right here. And so I'm going to style it in my writing in such a way as to where this sticks out is the central focus. Let me show you what a chiasm looks like. Notice there's one body, B, one spirit, C, just as you also were called to the hope of your calling, and then D, where it meets in the central. One Lord, one faith, one faith corresponds to how you come upon the hope. One baptism, we'll get to that next week, all my Lutheran friends. Make sure you invite your Lutheran friends to church next week. Okay? Corresponds with the Spirit up there, and then one God and Father who is overall, through all, and in all. But the idea is the way that it's set up stylistically is that Paul wants you to get there's only one Lord. There's not many Lords. The Lord is not divided. There are not many Christs. I mean, isn't that the fear in Matthew 24 when the disciples ask about, you know, Tell us about your coming and when these things are going to happen. What's the first thing Jesus tells them? Oh, it's going to go down this way and turn there in your Bibles. He doesn't do that. He says, don't be deceived. Many people will come in my name saying that they are the Christ. Don't listen to them. There are not many Christs. There's one Christ. He is the Lord. And that's it. And that's all, period. Uh, he's brought up in chapter 1, just thinking about where we got to. Chapter 1, verses 2, 3, 15, 17. Uh, chapter 2. Uh, verse 21, chapter 3, verse 11, chapter 4, verse 1. Lord Jesus, Lord Jesus, Lord Jesus, Lord Jesus. There's only one Lord. He's the Lord over all things. This entire thing, not just to mention our salvation, but even creation would not hold together if it wasn't for the Lord Jesus. We're told in Colossians 1, it's by Him that all things hold together. 
So the greatest miracle that's ever been done, ever, is the idea of having nothing and speaking existence into being. That's the greatest miracle ever. Because you had nothing, and now you have something. We can't do that with Legos. We always have something, and we make something else. Well, this is no Legos, and let there be Legos. And here they are. And now they're all uniform and and together and all of this stuff. That's the greatest miracle ever. And what we are told is, is that Jesus Christ was absolutely indispensable to that happening. If you don't have a Lord in that situation, our very molecules in our body would not hold together. We could not be sustained. Everybody's worried about climate change, nuclear problems. Guess what? If Jesus Christ isn't Lord, then we got a massive problem because we can't exist. That's the real problem. So his whole point is he wants to bring up, why should you strive for the unity of the faith that you have? Because Jesus is Lord who solidified it to happen. We couldn't be unified if in the cross he didn't divide that wall of separation. We couldn't be one if he didn't give his body for us. We wouldn't know how to live a brand new life if he wouldn't have raised from the dead. We would have no hope of eternity if he wasn't ascended as a first fruit of what the rapture will be. If he didn't do it all first for us, it would have never been done and we would be undone. Everybody with me? Okay, cool. Let's move this forward so children's church people are not mad. Uh, It is not. Just those four that I know of, but some people have actually said that one, two, three, and four, five, and six are a chiasm of their own. But all the attempts I've ever seen that, they don't work out very well. So, But I tell you, if you you want to look for chiasms, just type in biblical chiasm. It's worth a Google. You can Google it. And do that. You'll find all kinds of fun little things that will at least get you started. Uh, Gospel of John. John loves chiasms. He loves them. They're full of them. And sometimes he'll let them go for chapters and chapters and chapters. And sometimes it'll be three lines. It's, it's crazy. So anyway, fun stuff. Some of you are already asleep. You can wake up now. Here we go. Last one we're going to deal with. There's only one faith. Now here's the interesting thing about this. We're told believe in Ephesians. Right, The way that we came into the sealing of the Spirit was when we heard the Gospel, we believed. We were sealed with the Holy Spirit for the day of redemption. We have that. As far as the word faith being used in particular, this is the only time it's ever brought up in this book. However, I don't think it's talking about the one faith, the faith once for all delivered to the saints, as if the Christian faith. I don't think that's what it's dealing with here. I think what he's talking about here is there's only one way that you get access into this glorious being. That's it. And it's by faith and faith alone. In fact, this is one of my favorite verses that kind of brings that out succinctly. Romans 10, 17. So faith comes from hearing, and hearing by the word of Christ. When somebody comes in contact with the gospel, something has taken place in them at that moment to where God wants them to believe. In fact, uh, Lewis Berry Chafer put it this way. The word of God is the agency by which faith is generated. It's not that we muster up some sort of belief on our own, and it's not that if we believe something, all of a sudden we've committed a work into the situation. Faith is a response to the message it's put before us. We either believe it or we don't. And so I believe when it's talking about one faith here, it's the idea of coming into this glorious oneness. There was only one way that you got in. There's only one door to the ark. So you get into this by one way, one way only, God's way that he's put forward, and that's by faith in the Lord Jesus. Now, Go with me on this for just a second so we can finish this up. What was Jesus' heart on unity? I didn't have time to get into the other two because they're going to take up an entire sermon. I figure you guys want to stay that long. Okay. What was Jesus' heart on unity? I felt really impressed that we should bring this up. So turn with me to John 17 if you wouldn't mind. John 17, everybody's fallen asleep. He hasn't been betrayed yet. This is the prayer that he offers up in the garden. This is the high priestly prayer of Jesus. Some people have called that. I don't know if I agree with that because he didn't come up, become a high priest until after his resurrection. That's important for us to understand how that transpires. What was Jesus' heart on this? Look at verse 20, 21, 22, 23. Watch what he says here. He's praying. He spent a lot of time praying for the disciples, the 11 that he has, okay? And then he brings up something really interesting. He, he decides he's going to change it a little bit. I do not ask on behalf of these alone. Now the previous context, these, refers to the eleven. Now watch this. But also, I'm sorry, but for those also who believe in me through their word. Now pause. We've talked about this a long, long time ago. We looked at this passage for a minute. Who is that? It's us. I'm in the Bible. Yeah. And so are you. 
I'm not just praying for the 11, but they're going to go out and they're going to preach the gospel. And there's going to be people who hear this gospel because they obeyed and they went out and they preached it. And guess what? I want to pray for those people who are going to come in contact with the gospel and believe and be irrevocably redeemed. Now watch what he says here. What does he say about us? He says in verse 21, that they may all be what? One. Even as you, Father, are in me, and I and you. Pause for a second. Are the Father and Son separable? No, you cannot separate them whatsoever. So notice, he's not just telling us what his prayer, his desire is. He's also telling us what it looks like by way of example. The Father and the Son, always together like that. Well, guess what he desires for you and me? Irrevocably together. That's what his desire for us. Notice he says on here, Notice that even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us. Are you saying when I believe in Christ, I'm not in the Father, or I'm not in the Son? No, that's not the idea because this isn't talking about position. This is talking about those who have believed, so they're already in position, coming into a greater fellowship. Let's be honest. Would you agree that the closer that we grow in our walk with Jesus, the less divisive we will become? Everybody see that? This is a cry for fellowship. Jesus doesn't just want us to save us from hell. That's a good thing. He doesn't just want to pay for our sin problem. That's a good thing. He wants us to look at sin as absolutely abhorrent in our life, but not because we're staring at sin, because we're staring at Him. The more I stare at Jesus, the more those other things go right, right? right? Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in His wonderful face. And the things of earth, No, no, don't go far real quick because I got commentary on that. The things of earth, sinful things, will grow strangely dim. You know what that means? I don't enjoy that like I once did. I don't find satisfaction in that like I once did. Why? Because you moved on? Because you grew up? Because you got different interests? Because you decided you were going to change who you were and live a brand new life? You went through the midlife crisis in your 40s? No. It's the idea that I got so full of Christ that I stopped caring about all that other stuff. I didn't need to try to be filled anymore because I recognize I'm filled already. And the more that we look at Him, the rec- we recognize I'm filled already. I don't need those things. Those trappings stopped being important. So notice what He says. That they also may be in us, so that, here's the reason, Why? Why is unity so important from Jesus' perspective? That the world may believe that you sent me. The unified nature of the body of Christ, less fracture, more fruit, is the idea of testifying to the world of Jesus' existence of being here. How about this part? Keep going, two verses. The glory which you've given me, I've given to them. That they may be what? One, just as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may be perfected in unity. That Greek word is the idea of come to full maturity. That they would grow all the way up. That their growth wouldn't be stunted at 12 years old. The idea that they would be fully developed and flourishing to the pinnacle of what they should be. So that, here's the reason, the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Our unity testifies not just to the presence of Jesus bodily on earth, it also testifies to the fact that the love of the Father is profound for us. Notice that's not by us. I need to go tell people how much Jesus loves me. You can do that, and that's great. But what Jesus says the way to get that kind of stuff done is be unified and strive for that. His heart's desire is for us to be together. If all these wonderful things about Jesus doing this for you are not divided Why are we? It makes no sense. It makes no sense. So now let's close this. What is the application? Number one, we're to be diligent in retaining our unity. Remember, it's something that you already have. Our goal is to maintain it. Positionally, it's ours. Are we striving for that in how we practice among one another? Number two, solidarity is God's idea. He is the common goal. He is the common point of perfection of which we all have a very good interest in. (laughs) At least we should. 
But if you want to talk about things that rise up division, it's from Satan. Number three, there are not many bodies, there are not many hopes, and there are not many lords. There's only one. And if there is only one, then that should be centrally what we're focused on. Notice that we've looked at five of seven reasons that Paul gives about why we should strive for unity. There is oneness with God. The last one. Our act of unity testifies to the world that God has sent His Son and that He loves us. The fact is is that when we're most unified, we preach a message that is otherwise unpreachable. Satan has done a really awesome job of splitting us up, of fracturing us, of, of it's getting cold out. There's nothing cooler to me than when you walk out and you see a pond that's frozen over. Because it's all unified. Sometimes you see a fish go by. That's kind of cool. Right? It's all unified. But all you need is for somebody who's cantankerous to get in there and go, to start cracking it up and messing up the beauty all over the place. That's exactly what Satan does. We find the best beauty in testifying to the world when we're whole. Not when we're apart. If you know a believer in Christ right now that is estranged from the church, pray about reaching out to them. Encouraging them to be reconciled into the body and to be unified with the body. No one is so far gone that Jesus can't reach them. Good grief. Talk to them about their position in Christ. They already have everything. The only thing that's going on is they're missing out. Seek to be that reconciler in their life. We should not be fractured. Let's pray together. Holy Father, thank You for our time in the Word. Thank You, God, that You give reason upon reason that we should be diligent, that we should work hard and have intense motivation in striving for the unity of the body. Thank You that Jesus secures it. Thank You that the Spirit is who unifies us in Him. Thank You that it is a bond of peace wrapped around us. We have so much in Christ. Good grief, I can't even think about it right now. It hurts my brain. But Lord, we thank You for the fact that there is one body, there's one Spirit, there's one hope, there's one Lord, there's one faith, there's one baptism, and there is one God and Father who is over all and through all and in all. And we praise You that our understanding of reality is completely changed because of this profound oneness You desire for unity in the body. Lord, if we find ourselves fractured in some way, may we seek to be unified. May we humble ourselves. May we set ourselves aside, recognizing that the flesh profits nothing. And we would desire to be Spirit-led. Lord, in whatever way the heart needs to be worked on, pray that You do that work now. It's in Christ's name. Amen.